Good morning. Today's scripture reading is found in 1 Timothy 6, 2b through 10. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pangs. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Joe. Allison, thank you for leading us so low this morning, and thank you for being here this morning. Good morning, Trinity Church. Good morning. Great to see you here. Thanks for coming out and being part of our gathered worship service today. Um, we are in the last week, fourth week of our Discipleship 301 series, and uh, so thanks for hanging in there. If you're Watching online, we welcome you as well. Thank you for tuning in and being a part of this. And by the way, if you've missed any of these four messages through the month of February, uh, all the services and sermons are online, video or audio. You can catch up there. I encourage you to do that. Remember we said at the beginning, our desire is that everybody that's a regular part of Trinity Church um, get all four of these messages in First Timothy, our emphasis for this year on discipleship and being disciples who make disciples, that's the heart of who we are as a church. So um, please uh, grab a hold of those and watch them, listen to them if you can before uh, it gets too far away from the month of February here. And uh, we will do this week the same as we've done each week. We'll send out tomorrow an email with some questions just to get you a little deeper into the study of this passage and uh, to make some personal application and so on. So please look for that email and follow up with that through this coming week. And the next week, we are launching into a what will kind of be a series that prepares us for Easter. So Easter is the first Sunday of April. We have four Sundays in March, and we're, we're in a series called The Signs of the Passion. So we're looking in the Old Testament at some of the pictures and images that are there in the Old Testament that show us what the passion was going to be, what Christ would do when He came to offer Himself as a sacrifice for us and rise from the dead. And, and so, we'll be seeing how did that show up in the Old Testament, and then when we come to April, we'll celebrate the celebration of the, the resurrection of Christ together on Easter Sunday morning. So, hope you can be a part of that. Our, you heard about our 
our sunrise service for our community. So please, uh, that's an early morning, but come on, it'll be just beautiful. If you've never done a sunrise service, you don't want to miss this opportunity to start your Easter Sunday and praising God. So we'll be outside at the terraces for that services, that service on Easter Sunday morning. Uh, for today, before we jump into our passage, let's stop, let's pray, let's ask God's uh, help and blessing as we get into His Word. Lord, we thank You for the privilege of Your Word. Thank You for the the wonder of our salvation. And Lord, we've sung this morning the, this, these reminders that we have a story because You have saved us, that blessed assurance that we belong to You. And then to remind ourselves, not just belonging, but it's a, it's a family connection. We are Your sons and Your daughters brought in, adopted into the family of God, made Your children. And all of it is a picture of your goodness and your grace that's poured out on us continuously. And Lord, this morning, we're going to see in our passage that, that reminder of your generous heart toward us. So, Lord, we can just only say thank you. Thank you for finding us, choosing us, saving us, redeeming us as your own. And thank you that we can come together this morning in your word. And I pray that as your followers, as your disciples, we would... Dig into what you have for us, learn what you have, put into practice what you want us to live out from your truth, your word today. And I ask again, as I do each time I stand on this stage, Lord, I pray that you would help me to accurately communicate what you want said today. May, may your words fill me so that I can pass them on, communicate them to us as your people. And may it be your, the work and the power of your Holy Spirit in us, which we desperately need to teach us and, and guide us and change us, and the power of your living word that accomplishes its work in us too. For all this, we pray and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. How many of you had goldfish when you were growing up? Oh, a number of you did. That's great. So... I had goldfish, I went through a couple cycles of goldfish in, in my growing up years. That was it. My pets were goldfish and turtles. Um, I, I, I didn't get my first dog until age 10. I think my parents just figured I wasn't responsible enough to take care of it yet. But, you know, goldfish and turtles are not really, you know, fuzzy, warm, cuddly kind of pets. But with a goldfish, what I'm thinking is my parents probably figured at least it's all contained. You know, it's all right there in the bowl. You know, you can't go wrong. It's right there. Well, it's mostly contained in the bowl. That is until the goldfish jumps out and commits suicide out there on the side of the bowl. You know, that happened to me numerous times as well. One of the things I do remember about having goldfish as a pet is that you have to be careful not to overfeed them. Because goldfish, apparently, what I was told is they don't know the difference. They, you just pour the food and they'll just keep eating it. They'll eat whatever's in front of them. And then eventually they'll eat themselves to death. Well, I thought about that as I was preparing for this message this morning. I thought, I wonder if that was actually true or is that just something my parents said to, to help me, you know, be careful with the, with the fish food. Well, apparently it is the case. You know, different opinions out there, like with anything, but apparently they do. Some people think they just keep eating until, I don't want to get too specific here, but their insides kind of blow up. And they just destroy themselves. Or some people say it's because too much food, it changes the chemistry of the water, and that eventually kills them. And whatever the case is, they're eating too much. And in that sense, they are a picture of what happens if we 
bend to greed and overindulgence in our lives. And that's part of what's being addressed in this passage we have before us today. If you've been part of this series, as I mentioned, this is our D301 series. We've titled the series Shaped by the Gospel because we're looking into 1 Timothy to see what Paul has to say to Timothy. Say, here's how the gospel makes a difference in the lives of believers. Here's how you as a pastor, as a leader, need to teach the people so that they are shaped by the gospel as followers, disciples of Jesus. And so this discipleship emphasis brings us to the sixth chapter of 1 Timothy today where we see this, that our attitude toward money and finances is vital to being disciples. And specifically, Paul is saying, if greed and overindulgence has its grip on us, if we become like goldfish in that sense, if we just gobble up whatever we can get, then we're in trouble. If we're looking out for ourselves more than things of God, if we always want more instead of learning to give more, then we've missed what the call of a disciple is all about. And so that's our focus this morning. If you haven't done so already, please take your Bible, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're using the ESV in this series, and so if you pull that up on your phone or your device you have with you, we're going to be in this uh, some certain verses in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and our title for today is the, How the Gospel Shapes Our Finances. The gospel should shape our finances, very personal, very practical, where Paul goes in this last chapter. And as you know, he's given numerous warnings throughout the book about being careful about false teachers and false teaching. And so he, he says that again when he gets to chapter 6. It's almost like he summarizes it. You heard as, as Joe was reading this passage, he kind of collects everything he said about them, and he puts it all together, and, and he kind of focuses on the root problem, which then leads us into our focus for today. So real quick in those verses 2, 3, 4, 5, right in there. Here's how he describes the false teachers. They are conceited, they're craving controversy, they're quarreling over semantics, they're stirring up envy and dissension and slander and suspicions, they're causing friction among others. And then finally in verse, seven, at verse 5, sorry, Paul says, they think that their form of godliness is their ticket to gain, financial gain, prestige, power, whatever it is that they're wanting, they're desiring, they think that, this, this, that religion is their way to get it, and they're using that to get what they want. And so Paul takes that where he lands in verse 5, and he, he flips that around now, and he says, now for you, Timothy, as you teach the disciples, true disciples are just the opposite of that. They have an understanding of what true finance and wealth is all about in God's economy. And since we're going to be talking about money today, I thought it would make sense to put Paul's instructions to us in two equations, okay? So you math lovers will love this. This is a basic equation. It's really the way Paul describes it in verse 6, and so I've just adopted that for the next one as well. So in verse 6, we have the first equation. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. Now, there's your first financial equation for spiritual wealth. So, let's break this down a little bit. What does he mean? What is godliness? It's a great word, actually. You see it often. It's easy to kind of skip over it in, in Scripture. But it really is, is important to, to understand when, when you see that word, it, it's the combination 
of right belief and right behavior. Now, if you've been through the series, that should ring a bell. It should, wait, I've heard this before, because session one or, or sermon one and sermon three, both that Jason presented, were focused on that. Because that's in this book, Paul has been describing how we're shaped, how the gospel shapes our beliefs and our behaviors. Godliness is a word that puts those two together. You've got to have both. They work in tandem. To be godly is to think about things from God's perspective and then to act on those beliefs in a way that is consistent with God's will. Godly thinking, godly action. It's both doctrine and life. It's the Word of God, and it's your walk with God. Hearing God's principles today and applying them in your life that day, the next day, the next week, the next month. Let me try to put it in another context for you here. So this morning, as we are each Sunday morning, blessed by Allison's talents with music. Now, Allison, at some point, you must have learned some music theory, right? So, in music theory, for those of you that don't know, that's just basically learning how music works. It's, it's in some ways, its own language. We talk about reading music, right? So, there's chord structure and a lot of the, the wording about, about music that you have to learn first. Now, did learning music theory automatically translate into your being able to play the piano as you played this morning? No. She's shaking her head. No, no, no. It doesn't work that way. You can, the theory is important. You learn that along the way. In fact, a lot of times it comes as part of piano lessons. You actually you don't even know it. You're learning music theory. But you can't stop with just the theory in your head. It's got to translate in the exercise, in the practice on the piano or whatever the instrument is. It's the same with any instrument. You match the theory with the practice. That's what godliness is in the spiritual realm. It's the principles of God's Word, what God says about a godly life, and then matched to, married to the practice of that in our lives. That's godliness. And so Paul is saying that's, that's the first step. That's a key ingredient. And he especially, now he, remember, he's just launched this out of this Warning about the false teachers, he's saying, the false teachers miss, miss it on both fronts. <laughs> they have wrong beliefs and bad behavior. That's not godliness. What you need to be, true disciples of Jesus, you need godliness that puts together right thinking and right behavior. And what do we add to that? So, here's, we're continuing on with our equation here, right? So, godliness plus contentment. That's our next key word. And the specific word Paul uses here is a, is a great word, but it's, it's a word that, that shows up only here and in one other passage. So to help us understand it, I want you to see the other passage, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. Again, it's Paul writing here, but he says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency, there's the word, same word that's translated contentment in our 1 Timothy passage, Having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So what you need to grab from this is that when Paul uses this word contentment, he's talking about this God-given sufficiency. It's this understanding that God is able and God does for His people, gives all that we need at all times for everything. And, and that's why Paul uses those superlatives over and over, all things, all times, because that's how God works. 
And it reaches beyond the temporary circumstances and the material wealth and things of this earth. It's way beyond that. What God offers is so much bigger. And contentment is based on that. Now, Paul, Paul goes on to explain, in our, back to our passage now, 1 Timothy, look at verse 7. He's going to explain contentment for us a little more. For we brought nothing into this world, and we can, cannot take anything out of this world. So he's essentially saying all the things of this world are temporal. They are here and now. We arrive with nothing, and we leave with nothing. A baby is not born with a suitcase in its hand. And as you've heard the phrase, hearses don't pull U-Hauls. You don't bring anything in. You don't take anything away. Paul is reminding us of this. Got to, if to understand contentment, you've got to understand that the things of this, wor- this world are temporary, temporal. But it's a little harder when we get to verse 8. I almost want to argue with Paul a little bit here. So, verse 8, he says, But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. I go, oh, man. Paul, I'd like a little bit more than just that. Is he saying that all we should have, just enough food, just enough clothes, that's it, should know anything else? That's not his point. What Paul is, what he is doing here is he's describing the basics. He said there are certain things that are basic for subsistence in this world. And if those basic needs are met, then contentment can be built on that. So, you know how it is when when there's a disaster of some kind, people are in a hard place. What's the first thing they do? They bring in food and water and clothing and shelter. The basic needs of human beings. That's what Paul's referring to. He's saying that That's clear. We all need that. But then, for the believer, for the disciple, there's a contentment that must be learned. And so, Paul talks about that in a very personal way in Philippians 4. So, we're going to put another passage on on the screen here. Philippians 4, verses 11 and 12. Listen to how Paul describes this. I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. See, what he's saying here is that contentment is a secret to be discovered. It's It's a treasure to be unearthed, a lesson to be learned. It doesn't just come naturally to us. The contentment he's talking about is not a satisfaction that can be gained through things. It comes from God. It's a settledness that transcends our circumstances, which is why Paul says, I've I've been full and I've been empty, but I've still been content. He says, I've been in abundance and, and I've known need, but I still have learned regardless of my circumstances to be content in Christ. You know, one of the, one of the best pictures I've seen of this, just in, in a way to visualize it, is a painting. And I don't know if I've ever shared this one with you. I, maybe I have, because that's one of my favorite pictures and just the way it portrays this. But here's the picture. 
I'll show it to you on the screen here. It's a painting by Jack Dawson, and it's really a rugged scene. You know, the waterfall crashing over these really sharp, jagged rocks. You see the dark sky, a storm's looming, and the, the, the uh, lightning in the distance. Say, so, well, that's not really a very good picture of contentment and peace and calm. But if you zoom in on that picture, right in the center, lower center, as we're zooming in here, there's a bird, a little white bird dove perhaps that's nesting in a little cutout, a little crag in the rock there. That's the picture of contentment. Because that bird is settled and nested there despite the, the roaring water and things crashing around and the storm coming. It's okay, he's in the nest. And that's what Paul is describing, saying, if you're in God's hands, you're in that nest. And it doesn't matter what crashes around you, what storm blows through, if you understand that you're in God's hands, you can be content. You can be settled in that nest. That's what he's saying. That's true contentment. It doesn't have to do with how much you have. It doesn't have anything to do with what's going on around you. God is bigger than all of that. And when we understand that, when we have this combination, okay, here's the equation. Godliness plus contentment equals what? Great gain. Great. Well, great. what is the great gain, Paul? Well, the funny thing is he doesn't actually say. He, he doesn't walk into that. You would expect that in these next verses. Well, Paul, what's the great gain? It's going to come a little bit later. Instead, what he does is he shows us, in contrast, the great loss. He says, if you don't get this equation, if, if you don't lock into this godliness plus contentment equation for the disciple, then you're going to suffer great loss, not gain. So that's what he describes in verse 9. But those who desire to be rich, okay, there's lack of contentment. If that's your goal, if that's your desire, if that's your, your, what drives you for life, the desire to be rich, they fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And Paul isn't holding anything back here. I mean, he just throws it out there. This, he sets this desire to be rich in direct contrast to contentment. This is a lack of contentment. And he tells us the end game. If your pursuit is riches, here's where, where it will end up. And the image is pretty stark. That, that word for plunge is the word for a drowning person. You will drown in ruin and destruction. If your goal is personal riches. Verse 10, he says it another way. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And here, you have to be careful not to misquote this. I'm sure you've heard this. You've heard other people misquote this. It's not that money itself is the root of evil. It is the love of money that is the root of many different kinds of evil. When we believe that money can fix everything, that it makes us satisfied, that it can make us happy, if we believe that lie, then it will lead us into all kinds of sin and all kinds of pain. Pretty vivid language here, right? Paul says, this love of money will distract you from your faith and pierce your soul. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was hiking and 
as sometimes I do, I'll see a place I want to get to, and it's not where the trail is leading me. <laughs> and so sometimes my curiosity just gets the best of me, and I was like, I just want to get up to that ridge or whatever it might be, to that rock formation, so I leave the trail. I take off, which is usually not a good idea. And this particular occasion, I found myself in the midst of this thicket of thorns. I don't know how I even got in there, but I couldn't find my way out. The thorns every which way. So they're pulling at my skin and my clothes, and I, I couldn't even get to where I wanted to go because now I'm in the midst of these thorns. So now not only have I lost my trail, lost my way, I'm paying the price in pain. That's what Paul's describing. He's saying, if you get distracted by this, if you get drawn into this, this world's desire for wealth, if that's what consumes you, if that's what drives you, it will get you off track in your faith, and it will land you in the middle of thorns. It'll be painful. And Paul is throwing this warning to us. He says, don't end up here. This is the loss that you will face. So what is the great gain? Well, perhaps what Paul is meaning here is that the gain is that you don't suffer the loss. It's the opposite of this again. It's the freedom from these snares. It's deliverance from, from the ruin and destruction. It's protection from wandering in, from your faith. It's protection from this personal pain that's brought about by discontentment. I think Paul is saying the gain is you don't suffer this loss. And that's where he wants us to be as disciples. He wants us to experience gain, his gain, the right kind of gain, and not falling into this loss. So that's our first equation. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. I'm going to see a little further ex explanation of that gain in the next equation because these come a little later. We're going to jump down now to verse 17, and here's our next equation. Humility plus generosity equals true life. So in these next verses, 17 to 19, Paul describes for us another principle, another key kind of combination principle here. You need humility and generosity, and that's real life. That's true life. Look at verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, okay, wait for a minute. For the, now Paul is addressing the rich. It's, Timothy, here's what you need to tell the rich. Now, so our, our thought is, oh, good, he's talking to the 2% or the 1% or whatever it might be. That's not the rest of us. That's not, so we can just skip over these verses. That's for those rich people. No, because in Paul's day and age, by those standards, every single one of us in this room is rich. The things that we have, the material blessings that we have been given, these words apply to us. We need to hear them. So what is the first part of this? What is this humility? Go on with verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, prideful, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. So, Paul is saying, remind them, warn them, don't be prideful about what you have and don't put your confidence in what you have because it's temporary, it's fleeting. It's all a gift from God. That's why we shouldn't be prideful. Everything we have comes from Him. It's a gift from Him. If we understand that, if we understand stewardship, then we know we have nothing to boast about in terms of what we have. And we also should know, because it won't last, 
It is temporary, therefore we shouldn't put our hope in that. Instead, verse 17, the last part, he says, set your hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. In other words, we should be humble about our wealth and our possessions and thankful for God's generous, gracious gifts to us because He richly provides. Don't you love the way Paul kind of turns that around? He's saying, those who are rich, realize those aren't your real riches. Your real riches are from the one who richly provides all that you need. God is the source of our true riches. And so, this phrase, richly provides, is wonderful. That when we're content, when we grab a hold of the fact that God will provide all of our needs, that He will richly, abundantly provide for us, then we recognize that His desire is for our joy. He says, gives, richly provides for your enjoyment. It's not just the bare minimum. It's not just enough to survive and get by that God gives to us so that we might find joy in Him. You know, if if you maybe saw this video. It was played numerous times a couple weeks ago. I love this scene. This is a couple weeks ago when they got snow in D.C. And the, uh, the pandas at the National Zoo had a heyday. I mean, this is not, somebody didn't tell them, hey, go out there and slide in the snow. Just this instinct, instinct as animals to play. That God had given them that snow to enjoy. And they enjoyed it. Now, if, if God... If God did this, if God could provide something to provide joy that gives joy to a panda, how much more does God want to give joy to you? How much more will God richly provide for you all that you need for the joys, the true joys of life? Maybe we should just be more like pandas. I mean, maybe that's a picture of contentment too, right? Just, just to enjoy sliding through the snow. God richly provides for us, and He does it, and not only to teach us humility, that all we have comes from Him, but He provides for us richly, abundantly, so that we can help provide for others. And that's the connection to the next word. Humility plus generosity. Here's our other word, generosity. It's a character trait of true disciples. So, verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Two phrases. Let me pull these out here because these are phrases. I want them to be true in my life. You probably do in your life as well. Rich in good works. That's the first phrase he uses here. And you know what? You don't need a dime to be rich in good works. God has given us all time and talents And if we're willing to share that, just share ourselves, when we come across a need or an opportunity to do some good for somebody else, that is being generous with what God has given to us. I I had another illustration I was going to use. We're just going to skip the next picture, guys, because one just happened this morning. Um, I got a text in between the services this morning from from Joe, sorry Joe, I didn't even ask if I could use this story, but um, Joe and Pam were delayed. They were going to be our ushers here, and, and you know, Joe was going to read the Scripture as he, as he did. He said, I don't know if we're going to make it. We, somebody, 
ran off the road, and we had to stop to help her. We want to make sure she's okay but, you know, before others can come to help her. We're not going to leave her until then. That's just in the moment. That wasn't scripted. That wasn't part of their ushering duties or scripture reading duties, and it came first. I'm so glad Joe and Pam decided that. We're just going to stay and help any way that we can help, even if it means we show up late to church. That's generosity. That's being rich in good deeds, looking for opportunities when others may need our help in the moment and putting everything else aside to help. There's another phrase here too, and this goes right along beside it, ready to share. So generous disciples view not only their time and talents as to be used by God to help others, but their possessions, their property, their resources, their bank accounts, all of it is, and here's a key word, it's a storehouse. You are a storehouse. God has given to you so that you will have to be able to give to others when that's needed. That's the point and the spirit of generosity. And it doesn't just mean, well, okay, once a year I give to this or once a year I give to that. That's great, but the spirit of generosity is recognizing that all I have can be used to share with somebody in need. You are, another way to look at it is, you are a distributor of God's provisions. A distributor, a conduit. It kind of goes in and it goes out. It comes through you. You get the privilege of sharing God's generosity with other people. They find out God is generous and gracious because you have shared. Um, some years ago when I was the campus pastor at Toccoa Falls College, one of the things I loved about my job that I got to do was to manage one, an account. So we had a particular donor, just one donor, who gave money to the college for a very specific purpose. He said, I want this to be used for students when there's an emergency. So we built this fund, called it the Action Account, and we had a committee of myself and some other faculty members. And, and when a need would arise, for instance, like a, a student had a a health emergency, and they had to go to the doctor and didn't have the money to pay that doctor bill, or an emergency happened back at home, and they had to get a flight all of a sudden to fly back home and needed money for that flight, or came to the end of the semester and just ran a little short to finish paying their school bill even, just things like that, these unexpected emergencies, that's what this fund was to be used for. And so when we would find those students who needed that help, I had the privilege for to call them into my office and say to them, Here's a check. This will cover it. A donor has been gracious and given to the college specifically for needs like this, and it's my privilege to pass that generosity on to you. I love that. I love seeing the smiles, the surprise on their faces, the, uh, you know, the, sometimes the tears, like they can't believe this is happening. Generosity. And I got to be a distributor of that donor's generosity. We get that privilege with God. As disciples, we are distributors of His generosity. If we understand that all that we have is to be generously used to share with those around us in need, then we've gotten it. And then we get to distribute God's generosity to others. And the joy that not only brings others, the joy that brings us. Ready to share. And what's the result when we get this 
equation together, humility plus generosity, what does it equal? True life. Look at verse 19. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You know, people often talk about, I just got to continue building my account, my estate, whatever it may be, storing that up so that one day I can experience the good life. It's like you get the good life when you get enough. And that's just the opposite of what Paul is saying here. He's saying if you get this part about humility and generosity, that's the good life. That's real life. So when Paul talks about storing up treasure as a good foundation for the future, he doesn't mean the 401K or the IRAs or the earthly investments. He's thinking about much longer-term investment. He's talking about heavenly treasure. He's talking about eternal life. This is what Jesus meant too, Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. And so Jesus is saying, hey, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, this is your perspective on earthly things, on material things, that what you've been given is yes to sustain you, but it's also been given to you to help others. And in doing that, you will find real life. That's where your treasure is. And what Paul's talking about is an amazing exchange. So catch this as well. <clears throat> you see, what he's saying is that when we're generous with what God has given to us, and this goes even beyond us, by the way. This, we're going to try to do something here at Trinity sometime soon just in a real practical way of how to do estate planning in a way that benefits the kingdom of God. I think we need to think about not just here and now, but even as we, as we pass on, what happens to what God has given to us? Is it used for God's kingdom work? That's important for a part of our planning. So that's a practical step we'll come to later. But this exchange means that we take whatever God's given us and we, and we give it out. God makes a deposit in our eternal treasure. Now, we don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but it's promised in Scripture. Spiritual, eternal treasure. That's what Paul is referencing here. You know, I remember, speaking of this exchange, when I was a kid, maybe some of you did this too. Nowadays, I don't think you get anything for it, but back in those days, if you collected old newspapers and old, you know, aluminum cans, you could take those to certain collection places and get money for it. If you got enough of it, and based on the poundage, you would get cold, hard cash. I mean, mostly it was quarters and nickels and dimes for me, but as a kid, that was, that was a great exchange. Somebody else's garbage, trash for cash. And that's what Paul is saying here. And you can take the stuff of this earth that in the etern in eternal perspective, it's trash. It's old newspapers and aluminum cans. But if you use it for God's purposes, if you invest it for Him, if you share it generously, you can exchange it for eternal spiritual wealth. Do you trust God for that? 
for that exchange, it's just it's a whole different mindset. I understand that. I mean, this, it's a thinking about material things and our money, totally different from the, what the world tells us. But it's what God tells us. It's, it's the way of the disciple. So, the gospel shapes our finances. It should. As disciples of Jesus, we live by these heavenly equations regarding wealth and material things. So, here they are again. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. Now we know from reading those later verses, the great gain is heavenly reward, heavenly gain. Humility plus generosity equals true life. Life here lived for God and life eternally with God. So, how are we doing with this? As I was reading for this message this week, I ran across one writer who put some of these biblical principles into real practical questions on finances. I have to warn you, they're a little bit convicting, but I figure if, if I'm going to get convicted, you need to get convicted too. So, we're all going to get convicted together. So, here they are. It's just four questions, and I'll, you don't have to write these down. I'm going to put them on the questions that go out tomorrow. So, if you get the email, you'll get them. Just to think about for a moment, what concerns me more? How much money I have or how much of me God has? Number two, do I pray more about God supplying material things than I do about Him developing my character? Not that it's wrong to pray for physical, material needs, but if that dominates our prayers and we're not asking Him to develop our character, then we've missed it. Number three, do I spend more time and money caring for my house and my lawn than I do helping others? Hmm. Number four, am I confident about the future because my bank account is healthy or because my spirit is secure in Christ. That's true contentment. Our closing song this morning is a, includes a statement of contentment and a statement of commitment. And I asked Allison if we could sing this in closing for that very purpose. The, the contentment phrase is, you're all I want, you're all I've ever needed, spoken to God. He is all we want, all we need. We need to remind ourselves of that, say that often. That's the contentment piece. And then the song also says, it's the commitment piece, I lay it all down again. And we need that. Sometimes we need to just reminders like this, when we come to passages like this in Scripture to say, okay, Lord, I've, I've been holding too much, too tightly to my stuff. Help me lay it all down again. Let me put it available, make it available for your purposes. And maybe that's the recommitment you need this morning. If so, make that your prayer. Just respond as the song calls us to that. So let's, before we sing, just bow our heads for just a moment. And maybe just in a moment of silence, whatever God is leading you to in terms of your commitment. Lord, as your disciple, I, I want to live in godliness. And I want to live in contentment. Teach me that contentment. Or maybe it's to say, Lord, because you've so richly blessed me, you meet all my needs. Lord, teach me humility. Teach me generosity. I lay it all down before you.
Lord, you hear our prayers of response this morning. Thank you that you do so generously pour out your grace. You forgive us. You saved us. You guide us. You teach us. You are so patient in walking with us. So, Lord, we ask that you would walk with us in this difficult area, a very practical area of our lives, just in the way that we handle our finances, our material things. We want to do it in a way that honors you as disciples, followers of Jesus, to do this right. So, Lord, as we close this morning, we ask that help us to re-evaluate, recommit ourselves to be stewards of all that you've so abundantly graced us with that we would be quick to respond and help others ready to do good deeds as you give us opportunity. And then ready to share, ready to, when those needs arise around us, we'll take what you've given to us, we'll generously give it to others because you've taught us the secret of contentment and the joy of generosity. So, Lord, we come in humility this morning. We just say, Lord, teach us again. Draw us to you. Help us follow you, listen to you, learn from you, and live like you. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.